If you have a copy of God's Word, please open it up to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, the text is printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, By way of reminder, we're making our way through Exodus, and in chapter 24, we looked at what we said was the ratification of the covenant, or this official agreement by the people of God to say, we are going to live as your covenant people. And that began in the first half with what the author of Hebrews called a baptism. Of course, it was a baptism of blood, but it signified purification, and it signified remission or forgiveness of sins. And then the second half of chapter 24, uh, there was a covenant meal. And we saw a couple of things related to this covenant meal. That one thing was that it looked backward. It looked backward to the glorious salvation that God brought to Israel, bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. But it also looked forward, that that covenant meal looked forward to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a very similar way, the meal that we get to participate in each week as Christians looks backward. It looks backward on the work of Christ and how he died for our sins, how his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. But also we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will uh, be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. And this week we begin a new section in the book of Exodus which deals with the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and the majority of the rest of the book of Exodus, with a few blips here and there, deals with the tabernacle. Now, I put in the bulletin that we're going to read verses 1 through 22. Well, we're not. Uh, We're going to read through verse 16. We're probably not even going to get to verse 16, though. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I will tell you that uh, for the remainder of this series, we will be taking larger chunks of Scripture dealing with the tabernacle. So hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width. Width and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners, 
Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When I was a child, I remember one time helping my mom. She was cleaning something in the house, and I remember my mother telling me, Ray, I want you to go get a rag. I need something just barely damp. I want you to go wet a rag and then wring it out and then bring it to me. And I said, yes, ma'am. And so I remember going to get a rag, running it under the sink and wringing it out and then bringing it to my mom. And she said, okay, thanks, buddy. Uh, but I need a little more of this water. Can, can you take it back to the sink, wring it out some more and then bring it back to me? And I said, yes, ma'am. So I go back to the sink. I wring it out a little more and I bring it to mom. And she says, okay, thanks, buddy. But I, I need more. I need it. I need you to wring out more. And so back and forth we went three or four times, and it just seemed like no matter how many times I went back, there was still going to be water coming out of that, that, that there was always going to be water coming from that rag. When we come to texts like this, uh, a lot of times we skim over this text or we read it so quickly and we think, okay, here's a box, okay, here's a lid, Here's a table in the tabernacle. Here, here is a candlestick. But let me tell you something. There's so much here that if we were to spend the next 100 years wringing out this text, we would never be able to get all that there is contained in here. The tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle and the worship of the tabernacle is so important in the life of the Old Covenant Church because of the person and work of Christ. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. We're, we're going to talk about how important this is, and we're going to talk about symbolism and, and, and everything like that. But essentially, I have two goals. So, so we're going through the tabernacle. We're going through the worship of the tabernacle, the priesthood of the Old Covenant, and the furnishings of the tabernacle. And we're going to spend several weeks, not immediately, but throughout this uh, the remainder of the book of Exodus, talking about a box. And that we might think, well, this isn't very poor. We're going to talk about a box. We're going we're to spend time on talking about a lid to a box. Well, yes, we are. And I, I hope to show you two things. I basically have two goals as we go through uh, the remainder of our time in Exodus that deals primarily with the tabernacle. The first is understanding. I want you to understand the, uh, the tabernacle, the worship of the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, and everything that it signified. I want you to be able to interpret it and to understand it. And secondly, I want you to appreciate it. I want you to see how important reading these portions of Exodus is for your Christian life. Probably at least a gabillion times as we've been going through Exodus, I've quoted to you 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that includes even a sermon about a box and about a lid. So we're going to go through this series on the tabernacle and we're going to begin where God does, which is the financing 
of the tabernacle, and then he moves to talking about the furnishings of the tabernacle. So let's start with the finances related to the tabernacle. And we see this really from verses 1 through 9. Now he mentions here a great deal of raw materials, and we're going to deal a little bit more with those raw materials, with the jewels, with the gold, and things like that as we go throughout this series more than likely. Uh, But just note that I'm not passing over those things. Uh, But we're going to deal with those raw materials a little more when we get into the construction of the particular furnishings and of the tabernacle itself. But what I want to point out, the first thing is that he calls this an offering and that he says in verse 2, halfway down in verse 2, he says, From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. You know, the Bible teaches that we ought not to give begrudgingly. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. And the word for cheerful there, uh, tell me if this word sounds familiar. It's hilaros. It's where we get our word hilarious. It, It means cheerfully, joyfully, merrily giving. God doesn't delight in a begrudging giver. God delights in a cheerful giver. And I find it fascinating that he uses the word offering, which is literally a heave offering. But uh, it's fascinating to me that we, we haven't even begun to talk about worship yet, but he's saying, give to me an offering such that the contributions to the building of the tabernacle is an act of worship itself. Let me, let me say that one more time because I don't want to skip over it. I do think that is very important in what God is saying here. The contributions to building the tabernacle are just as much an act of worship as the worship itself that took place in the tabernacle. So don't take giving lightly. Don't take contributing. One day God's hopefully going to call us to build us our own building and one day you're going to be called upon to give willingly from your heart. That day is not today. This is not a building campaign. We've got several visitors here this week. This is not a building campaign, okay? We're going through Exodus. That's the only reason I'm talking about this. But let me say, one day that day is going to come and God is going to call upon you to give willingly from your heart. But why an offering? You know, I was thinking about this. What could God have done? Well, he could have prepared something. God could have prepared something. You know, and that's actually what God did do for the land. Listen to Joshua 24, 13, what God says to his people as they're about to take the land, about to go into the promised land. Listen to what God tells them. He says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now think about what he's saying there. I'm going to bring you into a promised land with a whole bunch of farms that you didn't farm, a whole bunch of cities that you didn't build, and a whole bunch of houses that you didn't labor for. God could have done that with the worship. He could have said, okay, I'm going to bring you into a place with a a temple or some sort of ziggurat or, or something like that, and that's what I'm going to prepare for you, and I want to bring you into that land. But that's not what he did. He didn't prepare something for them. So he could have prepared something, but he also could have required something. Remember, we've already talked about this a little bit when we were talking about uh, the commandment, thou shalt not steal. But God requires the tithe of his people 
for the work of the priests to fund the worship of God. And God does this as well in our day. We, we talked about this a while ago when we talked about the tithe. Uh, uh, that God could have required something like the tithe, which he did require. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't prepare something, and he doesn't require something. Instead, God wants his people to invest. He says, I want my people to invest in the worship so that, here's why, so that my people will be invested in the worship. You see... If you were to spend $30,000 on a vehicle and the next day that vehicle gets sideswiped by a tractor trailer, I'm, gonna will, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you would probably care about that. You would probably want to make sure that the investment that you made was uh, uh, taken care of, that you didn't just lose thirty grand. Well, think about what God's telling them. He's calling them in the construction of this tabernacle, which is going to take a while. It's going to require a lot of time, a lot of labor from the people of God, and it's going to require a significant financial investment. Indeed, remember when God brought his people out of Israel, he says, okay, excuse me, out of Egypt, he tells them to go to the Egyptians, and he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. But you need to go and ask them for gold and silver. And what do the Egyptians do? They give them their gold and silver. And so he brings them out and he says, by the way, I want you to give me willingly from your heart. I'm not going to set a limit. It's not something you have to do. But whoever wants to willingly from your heart, gold, silver, onyx, and whatever else the other raw materials were. God wants his people to invest in the worship of God so that they will be invested more so than the land. More so than the homes, more so than the fields and vineyards. He wants his people to care about the worship of God. So he begins with the finances, and then he moves into the furnishings. But I want to call your attention to verse 9, where he says, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Well, before we move into talking about the furnishings, if we have time, we're going to talk about this Ark of the Covenant, or as it's called here in Exodus, the Ark of the Testimony. But we need to deal with a couple of introductory matters that have to deal with our understanding and our interpretation of the worship of the tabernacle. And to do that, uh, I want you to turn... Well, not yet. I'm sorry. Let's deal with a couple of things. I want to talk about three things related to this. Some introductory matters before we move into the, the tabernacle or the furnishings itself. The first thing is the purpose. Uh, this is the purpose of their salvation. Multiple times. I, I counted six, but I think there were other times that where it's worded a little differently. But throughout the book of Exodus, what God says, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may, here's why, here's the purpose, that they may serve me or worship me. In another place, he says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Six, seven, eight times, something like that. I forget the exact count. He, over and over and over again, this refrain is, I am saving this group of people so that they will worship me. This is the purpose of their salvation, is so that they will worship him. 
You remember a couple of weeks ago we went through our series on spiritual disciplines and I told you the, the purpose, the ultimate goal is not salvation. The ultimate goal is godliness. God saves us for a particular purpose. Salvation is a means to an end, not the end in of itself. And we see this very same thing here throughout Exodus. If, if the salvation of the people of God was all that mattered, the book and the story would end as soon as they come out of Egypt. But that's not what happens. So we see the purpose of their salvation is the worship of God, and we see this in the tabernacle. But also I want to talk about the primacy of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Exodus is 40 chapters. I said it over and over and over and over again that the first half deals with Israel's salvation. The second half deals with their sanctification. Well, isn't it interesting that he doesn't take the bulk of that time talking about the Ten Commandments? He does not take the bulk of the time and the space of the book of Exodus to talk about the judicial case laws of Israel. The vast majority, at least of the second half of the book of Exodus, deals with making a box, a candlestick, and a tent. I mean, things that we don't really pay much attention to and things that we tend to rush through when we read things like the book of Exodus. And I hope that you're reading through Exodus right now in your Bible reading plan. But don't rush through these things. They're important. Primacy. The, the tabernacle and the worship takes primacy in the book of Exodus. In fact, the first several chapters dealing with it is the commands, and then uh, the remaining chapters at the end of the book of Exodus deals with their actually constructing it. There's a lot of repetition and a lot of space given to this. The primacy in the book of Exodus. All right, thirdly, we talked about the purpose and the primacy. Now I want to talk about the picture. Now, a couple of minutes ago, I wanted you to turn somewhere. Now I want you to turn there. Turn to Hebrews 9 if you have a Bible, please. Hebrews chapter 9. I know we keep going to Hebrews a lot uh, for in interpretive sake. And the reason is simply because the author of Hebrews deals a lot with the book of Exodus. So I want to show you something. Now remember, the, the essential argument throughout the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of the new covenant over against the old covenant. Uh, the supremacy of Christ over Moses. The supremacy of the promises. And uh, even the supremacy of the worship. Uh, the old covenant priesthood done away with. There are no uh, Aaronic or Levitical priests in the new covenant. That Christ is our great high priest. And there is a, a priesthood of every believer is a priest. Uh, but, but he does refer a lot to the Old Covenant worship, and particularly the worship of the tabernacle. So I want to walk through a couple of verses here in Hebrews 9. So let's start in verse 1. He said, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. So he's talking about the tabernacle or this tent of meeting, the place of worship under the old covenant before the temple was constructed. Now drop down to verse 6. He says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, talking about all the furnishings and everything having to do with the tabernacle, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. 
Uh, here's key. Don't, don't lose track here. Listen to this very carefully what the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this. If I could just draw your attention to those words and, and have you memorize those few words. The Holy Spirit indicating this. Those are key. Now let's keep reading. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. And then he says it was symbolic for the present time. Now the present time there, the, the book of Hebrews was written while the temple was still standing. So when he's saying the present time, he's not talking about us today in our century. He's referring to the fact that the temple was still standing and there were still sacrifices being offered. But the, the two phrases I want to draw your attention to are the Holy Spirit indicating this in verse 8, and then in the beginning of verse 9 where he says, it was symbolic. So the Holy Spirit was indicating something by the worship under the Old Covenant. You see, it, what, it, they were not just mindless rituals. It was not just, okay, go into this part of the tabernacle. Okay, sacrifice these animals. Pour them on the altar. Do this. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat. We'll get to all of this eventually. We'll, we'll talk about the worship of the tabernacle. What, what, what I need you to recognize and not forget is that the Bible says the Holy Spirit was indicating something. It wasn't just about carrying a box with a lid on it or lighting a candle. There was something bigger going on than a candlestick and a little table with bread on it. And then in verse 9 he says, it was symbolic. So these are symbols, they're figures, they're pictures that point to something. So what we need to deal with now is what is symbolic? Now, I've already told you how important the tabernacle is, uh, but, but I want to I remind you of a verse that you probably know by heart. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 by heart. But I bet there's something about John 1.14 that you don't know. So John 1.1, in the beginning, God... Uh, that is not John 1.1. That's Genesis 1.1. John 1.1 is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when we drop down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and say it if you know it. That's not what it says. That's exactly right, Tony. Four and a half gold stars for you. <laughs> It says tabernacle. The Greek word there is the verb form of tabernacle. And if we have time throughout this series, I'm going to walk you through the Gospel of John and show you how John takes this walk through the tabernacle uh, and as identifying the fulfillment of Christ as being the fulfillment of everything to which the tabernacle was pointing. So there are symbols... There, uh, the Holy Spirit is indicating certain things, and there are symbols that are happening in the worship of the tabernacle. Now, we need to talk about symbolism. Symbolism is important. Interpretation is important. We have to understand how to interpret the Bible. So we need to talk about two things. We need to talk about a danger, and we need to talk about a difficulty. So let's talk about the danger of symbolism. There is a great danger in symbolism. Because there are some people, on the one hand, who have completely ruined the faith with symbolism, with interpreting the Bible with symbolism. Let me give you an example. There have been men 
throughout the history of the church, including in our day, that say there was no worldwide flood, that this was simply an allegory to show us that God uh, has anger or something like that, and that the worldwide flood in Noah's day was not an historical event, that it was merely symbolic. There are others who say Jonah did not really get swallowed by a big fish and spit out on dry land, that that was just symbolic of something of God's love for the nations. Now, here's partly why it's dangerous. Part of that's true. You do learn about the loving kindness of God for the wicked in the book of Jonah. And you do learn about the wrath of God from the account of Noah in the book of Genesis. But that does not mean that just because we learn certain things from those accounts that they are not in and of themselves historical events. So if we have no flood and if we have no fish, then what that eventually inevitably leads to is that we don't have a faith. Because here's what happens. If those historical events aren't really historical and we just interpret them as allegories, then we come to the New Testament and we see the life of Christ, then those events are merely allegories and we don't really have a Savior to die for us. What we have are moralistic stories to tell us how we should behave. And that is not the Christian faith. Jesus, if we don't have that, if Jesus really didn't die, we don't have a Christian faith. We're still under God's wrath. And furthermore, we really couldn't interpret anything in the Bible. So there's a danger in symbolism. There's a great danger in symbolism. But on the other hand, some have ruined the Christian faith. They, they react in the other direction. They say, well, we don't want to do that. We know that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. And we know that there really was a great flood that covered the whole earth because the Bible says that. So we're going to go in the other direction and make an possibly equally wrong-headed error and say, well, that all of the Bible ought to be interpreted in this rigid literalism. Well, you see, that's not true either. Well, how, how do we know? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. The Bible says that God is a shield. To those who put their trust in him. Is God made of wood or bronze or anything like that? That's not to be taken literally. The Bible says that God covers us with his feathers. That does not mean that God is a chicken. My personal favorite is in Revelation where it says that there was a woman who sits on four mountains. Now I have seen some large women. But I don't think that Revelation is talking about a woman so large... That she can encompass four mountains. You see, the, the foolishness of reacting in the other direction, you, you, can, you can ruin the faith in the other direction as well by saying, no, 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 we don't want to do this, so we're going to go in this other direction and have a rigid wooden literalism. Well, that, that's not biblical either. And so then the question is, well, where is the answer? And the answer is in three words. Context, context, Context. Always context. Let me give you a couple of examples. I have uh, not as many as Pastor Mike, but I've got a lot of books in my office, and quite a few of them are of the life of so-and-so, the life of John Knox, the life and letters of Robert Louis Dabney, the life of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and so on and so forth. I'm showing my colors there. I'm sorry. But um, 
The point is, it's obvious when you just look at the cover of those books what they're about. Those are not intended to be allegories. Everybody knows when they pick up that book in my study exactly what the purpose and the intent of that book is. And in the same way, when you go to Genesis and you read 11 times, this is the history of dot, 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 the heavens and the earth or uh, the sons of Noah or whatever it may be. The Hebrew word is toledot there. These are the histories of, you know, it, it's explicitly telling you here is an historical account. The same way that if you pick up a book off of my study, you know uh, that it is an historical work or it is uh, poetry. I mean, it's, it's obvious because genres of literature are usually self-evident the way that we interpret them. Let me say that again. The genre of the literature is usually self-evident. Now, let me give you another reason. It's not just that it's obvious from the author's intent. Uh, the other reason is that in the New Testament, we are explicitly told and we see the example that history is interpreted as history and that poetry is interpreted as poetry. If you read the Gospels, Jesus refers to Adam as an historical figure. He refers to Abraham. He refers to David. He refers to all sorts of people in the Old Testament that were obviously historical. And he, he's not drawing some sort of allegory. Yes, he does uh, uh, gain insight from them, and, and we do learn things about God and things about the way that we are supposed to live from those historical accounts, but they're not allegories. All right, so the New Testament... It's evident that the biblical writers understood this. So we know it, it's self-evident, but there's another reason that the, his, the biblical writers understood it this way as well. So that's, that's the, uh, the danger having to do with symbolism. That we, we have to recognize there is such a thing as symbolism. The Holy Spirit indicates this. It explicitly tells us in the Bible. And we need to avoid both extremes of ridiculous symbolism that, that throws out the historicity of the Old Testament. We need to throw out the ridiculous, rigid literalism that doesn't interpret the scriptures in their context. So that's the danger in symbolism. But there's also a difficulty in symbolism. Now, what would happen if I, uh, Pastor Mike goes through the worship service like he always does, we all pray, then we take the offering and I get up here and I read the text, and then I start speaking in Mandarin Chinese when I'm trying to preach. Would anybody in here be able to understand what I was saying? What if I started speaking in Farsi? Would anybody in this room be able to understand what I was saying? This means no. This means yeah. Okay. One more question. What if I were to speak in Spanish? Would anybody in this room be able to understand it? David's not in here, that lot. That lot. My, I planned on David being here, and that threw me off. <laughs> but let's pretend that David's here, and I said that. You would need to go like this, wouldn't you? So it, it's, we have to recognize that what we're dealing with is a, a language. David could understand me if I were to speak in Spanish because David knows the language, and that is the language of the Scripture. Symbolism is a form of language. It requires us to learn the language. It's not unattainable, but it is difficult. It's difficult to learn a language. 
it's difficult to study years to learn Greek and learn Hebrew so you can study the scripture and things like that. If you've ever learned, um, if you've gone to a foreign country to learn a language to minister or something like that, it's difficult. It takes a lot of work. I've got a family member that flew out to California for the military. He learned six different dialects of Arabic to listen to uh, terrorists uh, across the world and interpret what they were saying to try and protect our country. And that... Difficult. He is like the smartest person you'll ever meet in your life. It takes work to do something like that. But it's not unattainable. It's not unattainable. So look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a quiz here. And I know we don't do this a lot. But I want you to answer out loud. Okay? I want you to answer out loud. I want to show you that this is something that's attainable. So I'm going to ask you a couple of things. And I want to show you that symbolism is something that we can grasp. So the first question is, if I held up a red octagon, what would that mean? Very good. Let's say that I showed you when you're driving and you see a green light. What does that mean? Okay. What if you're driving and you see a yellow light? What does that mean? What if I show you... Uh, I'm sorry. That was bad. That was bad. That was a bad dad joke. Okay. That's right. One person got it right. It means hurry up. It's about to turn green or about to turn red. That's what it really means. Okay. Now let, let's do it a little bit more difficult. What if I showed you a rainbow? Is that what it means? Well, let's say we go get some folks who have never been to church before. Very good. No more talking. <laughs> I'm teasing Sherry back. All right. Um, let's say that we get some folks who have never been to church before, never read the book of Genesis, and we bring them in here, and we got a rainbow up here. Do you think that they would understand it the same way? No. No, they wouldn't. And here's why. The culture that you're in with respect to symbolism is going to determine what the symbols mean. Now, objectively, God has told us, when I put this in the sky, this is what it means. But that doesn't mean that everyone understands it. And you know what? If you and I had not been, hopefully, raised in a Christian family or at least spent some time in a Christian family or some time in the Scriptures, we would not understand that either. You cannot look at a rainbow in the sky and think, you know what? I bet God's never going to flood the earth again. You know, That's not something you just inherently know. It's something that God has to teach us. That symbol that we see is embedded in culture and embedded in the language of the scriptures. But you understand it because you have something of the knowledge of the culture that happens in the scriptures. So uh, we, to be able to understand the symbolism of the tabernacle, the importance of the box, the importance of a candlestick... We have to know the scriptures. One last passage. Go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke. I'm going to close with this. A couple of verses in Luke. Remember, Luke 24, Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. He appears to his disciples. And this is what he says in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things 
and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Moses, through the tabernacle, is writing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Imagine being at that Bible study that day, that sermon on the Lord's Day, where he starts at Genesis 1-1, goes through presumably the tabernacle as well, and tells them, you see, everything here was pointing to me. Another appearance right after this in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You see, we can't just intuitively look at a rainbow and say, God flooded the earth, and he's not going to do that again. Nor can we just look at the scriptures and say, oh, a box. Jesus is probably going to die and rise again. That You don't just look at a box and think that. But if you're in the culture, if you're in the language, if you know the scriptures well, you know that everything in the Old Testament pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. He tells them on the road to Emmaus, everything in the scriptures was pointing to me. He tells them here, beginning at Moses, once again, all of the scriptures, everything in the Old Testament, pointed to the fact that I am going to give my life for the sins of my people. I'm going to take their place when I die. The Christ is going to suffer and he's going to rise again from the dead, ascend up into glory, that the kingdom... Uh, in which they believed was something that had been told to them, even in something as simple as a box. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the symbolism. And God, we do ask that you would grant to us the blessing that you gave to your disciples, that you would open our understanding that we might comprehend the scriptures as it relates to the tabernacle. In Christ's name we pray, amen.